0: Hey everybody it's david creek I want to thank you for listening to the westchester church podcast we're coming to you from the philadelphia area and you can check out our website at westchester cfc.com westchester cfc.com well this morning's message is a word for the lost. My only area of expertise is losing things. I lose my wallet, I lose my phone, I lose the keys to the car and the keys to the house. I lost my passport. I'm so good at losing things that I'm about a hair away from losing my mind. If Amanda was given a penny for every time she saw me going around the house and saying, muttering out loud to myself, where did it go? I literally just had it in my hands four minutes ago. How could I possibly have lost it? She would be richer than Jeff Bezos. And yet I have a feeling that I'm not alone in that. I have a feeling that we all have lost something of deep personal value to us before. And in the church, lost is a word synonymous with those who don't know God. Lost is a word descriptive of those who don't yet believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Of those who are unbelievers who either live unaware of Jesus in the gospel, or who have rejected it altogether. For as we know, God sent his Son into the world, so loving it that he gave his only begotten Son. Certainly we know that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. And so we often hear expressions in the church that we need to reach out to the lost, And I say amen to that. We quote Jesus in the church when he says that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And I share in that desire. And yet I find it very interesting how in New Testament Scripture, lost is a word that doesn't appear very often. In fact, it's only... It only appears about 16 or so times in all of the New Testament. And it might surprise us that lost is a word that Jesus uses in the gospel in order to describe religious people who have somehow in some way wandered from the ways of God. How lost is a word that describes those who have already long since believed, not those who have yet to believe. When that word lost originally appears in our text, it is a word which is translated as meaning one who is dying and one who is in the process of being destroyed. It's a person whose spirit is decaying. And spiritually speaking, they resemble what once was a beautiful rose that now is in the process of withering. I find it interesting that this word lost is the same word in its original language that the the disciples use at the sea storm. As they cry aloud to Jesus, Lord, save us, don't you care that we are perishing? It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Garden of Gethsemane as he confronts Peter. And he says, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. To live lusting for violence and for vengeance, according to Jesus, is to be in a state of lostness. And as we will see this morning in our text in Luke chapter 15, of the 16 or so times in the New Testament that the word lost makes an appearance on the page, six of those times roughly are in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, we find the lost parables of Jesus. Where the whole entire chapter, Jesus speaks very beautifully about that which is lost. And what inspires these lost parables is what we find in the opening two verses. Where in Luke chapter 15 and verse 1, we read, Luke says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Well, these religious enforcers, these religious instructors are looking around, and they happen upon Jesus sitting at a table. He's sharing the intimacy of a meal with the kind of people in their society who they branded as the only sinners in town, as the real sinners. And so they're grumbling. They're very much offended at Jesus as he shares a meal with these people they label as sinners. And so they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, why why would he be associating with these horrible, despicable, lost pagan sinners? Jesus, being aware of their thoughts or or what they're saying, perhaps, he responds by immediately launching into a parable. In fact, Jesus tells a series of parables that all carry the same premise, where something of great astronomical personal value is, is lost. But then especially the joy and the euphoria that ensues when that which was lost becomes that which was found. And so Jesus begins and he says that that it's possible that we can be lost like a sheep. And just about all of us know what this parable is frontwards and backwards, right? And yet I want us to read this very closely, though. This is a picture that Jesus paints very beautifully of a shepherd. He's got a hundred sheep, right? But one day, one of those sheep wanders away, and it becomes lost. I want us to notice very closely that this is not an outsider sheep, but rather this is a sheep that has long since already been in the pasture. This one lost sheep is part of the shepherd's flock. And yet as sheep have the tendency of doing it, it grows careless, and it begins wandering off. Then it wanders a little bit further, then it wanders until ultimately it's wandered too far, and now it's lost. And this lost sheep is doing something eventually that that all lost sheep do, where it becomes paralyzed with fear. And all that it can do is cry aloud helplessly for its shepherds. And yet notice the shepherd's response, though. I just want us to know that if there's any doubt in any heart this morning of whether or not we matter to Jesus, of whether or not we have worth in the eyes of God, all of that is laid to rest here. Where we find the shepherd, even though he's got 99 other sheep, he leaves the 99 in the open country. He stops everything that he does. He searches for that one lost lone sheep until he finds it. And Jesus says when he has found his lone lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders. He rejoices all the way back to the open country and to the open pasture. He brings it back to the other 99 sheep, calls together everybody who he knows and says, rejoice with me. Celebrate with me because this one lost sheep that I lost is now found. See, that is how important That is how irreplaceable, that is how valuable we are to Jesus. And as Jesus says in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who feel that repentance is beneath them. Remember, he's speaking of the Pharisees here. Well, Jesus also says that we can also become lost like a coin. So Jesus tells another parable. It's it's a woman in this instance in a house. She, She has ten silver coins. She loses one of them. And yet again, notice that this is not a coin that she found in the mud in the street. Rather, this is a coin that has already long since been in this woman's house. And yet she loses it some way and somehow. Well, a sheep is lost ultimately by its own carelessness and by its own wandering. And yet a coin becomes lost in a different way. Because after all, coins cannot just walk away and become lost on their own. A coin is ultimately lost by the carelessness of another. Although it's certainly true that we must all work out our own salvation, and that in a sense we are without excuse. It's also true that we have an influence in the lives of other people, either for better or for worse. How you treat me and how I treat you is very, very important. How I stand before you and speak to you as a minister of the gospel, how I speak to others when I take the word of God to them, that is very important. In fact, I'm going to be judged stricter because of that. And, and you know, I've met countless people who, who once were, were very excited about the prospect of following Jesus. And yet, who very soon after their baptisms, they lost that desire. Largely because the one who had taught them was very hypercritical because he was very harsh or because the one who had brought them to Jesus and who told them about him ran off with somebody else's wife or got entangled in some kind of illicit affairs. I've met a lot of lost coins in the world. Some returned, praise God. Some never came back, were never recovered. But once again, in this parable, we see the astronomical value of something that was lost. Where even though it's true that this woman has nine other silver coins, her her response is, I can't afford to lose even one of these coins. And so what does she do? She, She rips her house apart, searching every single crevice in the house until she has the coin in her hand once again. Once again, in in this particular parable, we see her elation. Where we all know that feeling where, where we've torn the house apart looking for something. Finally, there it is. She calls together everybody who she knows and says, Let's throw a party, celebrate, rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. That's how valuable. That's how priceless. That's how utterly irreplaceable you and I are in the eyes of Jesus Christ. And then, most memorably of all, perhaps Jesus' greatest parable of all, He reveals to us that we can be lost like a son who goes to His wealthy father and demands His inheritance and He leaves His father's estate. And yet again, notice that this is not an Not a stranger who's trespassing. But rather, this is the father's son himself. This is somebody who has lived at his father's estate his whole entire life. And yet, as I said, he he goes to his father and he no longer wants to live on his father's estate. And as Jesus tells this particular parable, I can promise you, that the people listening to these words for the very first time would have been absolutely fuming because it was absolutely unheard of for for a son to go to his father while he was still alive and full of life and demand his inheritance right now. To do so would be to disown your father. What he's saying to his father in so many other words is, Dad, you are dead to me now. All I want is your money. I would rather have your money than to be called your son ever again. I'm out of here. And you better believe that the people listening to this parable at this part of it would have been thinking, no, 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 no. He doesn't disown you. You disown him, Father. You let him know that you're not going to give him anything. That you're going to take his inheritance and give it to another person in the family. No, you send him packing and you tell him that he will never be your son ever again and that he better never set foot anywhere near my estate ever again. But to their dismay, though, the father gives him his inheritance. Everybody's looking at Jesus like, what did you just say? As we know, the son packs his bags and he leaves and And as Jesus says, he squanders his father's inheritance with loose or with with wild living. This is first century code for drunkenness, for prostitutes, for things that are too hellish and too dark to even say out loud. Just use your imagination. Well, he rides this roller coaster of, of indulgence, until he very soon is, has blown through all of his father's inheritance. It's left him impoverished, it's left him starving, and it reaches a point where this Jewish man living in what would have been in the Decapolis, in this far distant country, this Jewish man now has a job feeding pigs of all things. These Jewish ears hearing this parable would have said, he's feeding pigs? Did you just, he's feeding pigs? And it's gotten so bad that he is now so hungry. That the son of the king is that close, that close. To getting down on his hands and knees in the mud. And competing with the pigs for the last bite of the slaw. And we see the self-destruction in all of this. He's gone from having it all to having nothing. To living in absolute opulence, to living in abject poverty. He's gone from dining with luminaries to dining with pigs. And yet then a beautiful thing happens. Jesus says that he comes to his senses. See, what this means is that his heart is broken at his actions. He's thinking, oh my God, what have I done? God, what have I become? I have wasted my father's inheritance. I've made him dead to me and I to him. I'm just so ashamed of the things that I've done. But ultimately, he decides that even though this probably won't get me anywhere, I'm going to arise. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to tell him that, that, Father, I have sinned against you. I'm not even worthy to be called your son or to set foot anywhere near your estate. But listen, I, I'm not expecting you to call me your son anymore. Just just. Hire me as one of your servants. And I can promise you, this is the part of the parable that these people are most excited to hear. Because this is the part where they expect the father to say, oh, you just let him show his face around here again. I will send him right back where he came from. When I was little, I I remember hearing a song It was called, it was a country song, it was called When You Leave That Way. I don't know if anybody ever heard this. It's kind of obscure, I guess. It goes, I remember waking in the morning to the sound of the rooster's crow. Mama cooking in the kitchen with Arthur Godfrey on the radio. Me and dad were just like strangers. We never did see eye to eye. We came to blows one Sunday morning. And so I packed my bags and I said goodbye. And when you leave that way, you can never go back. A train won't run on a torn up track. Sometimes I wish I'd never roamed, oh no. But when you leave that way, you can never go home. The story continues and he says that, then I met a girl in Knoxville. And we set our wedding date. I left her standing at the altar with a baby on the way. And I would love to see my mom and dad and what i give to hold that boy of mine. I'd get down on my knees and say I'm sorry if I could only go back one more time. But I killed a man in Houston when he caught me with his wife. And I told the preacher man to leave me alone when he came to read my rites. That when you leave that way, you can never go back. A soul won't run on a torn up track. All through eternity, you will roam alone. Because when you leave that way, you can never come home. All through eternity, you will roam alone. Because when you leave that way, you can never Come home. And this is what the status quo was of this age for for all rebellious sons who left home and squandered their father's inheritance. This is what they're waiting to hear from Jesus. But rather what they hear from him is not the parable of when you leave that way you can never come home, but the parable of the restless father where from the minute that his son left him, he's been watching and watching and watching. He's been waiting and waiting and waiting. There's bags underneath his eyelids. He's sleep deprived. His heart is shattered in a thousand pieces. But then at long last, after all of this watching and waiting... And staying up late, at last he can see somebody slowly sauntering up the road. He's got his head down. And he's walking sluggishly slow. Well, he recognizes that it's his son. And while he's still a long way off, the father then does something that was completely unheard of for the patriarch of a family. We're filled and overwhelmed with compassion for his son. As he returns home, the father hikes up his robe and runs as fast as his feet will take him. Adrant patriarchs never, ever, ever run. But this father is running. He's breaking the world record for the 40-yard dash. And you know, this is the only time that we will ever see God run, not away from us, but rather sprinting towards us when we return to him. His son reeks of pigs and a pig sweat and a pig slop. The father doesn't care. He hugs him. He squeezes him with every fiber of his strength. He kisses him. He surely knows that there are other people who would point to the law of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 21 If a man has a stubborn, rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him and he will not listen to them, then his father shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This is our son. He is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. And you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all of Israel shall hear and fear. That's what is going through the minds of these listeners. Yes, it's time to have a rock concert. And yet I remember Jesus saying something in the Sermon on the Mount that he he has come to fulfill the law, right? He doesn't even let his son reach his gate. He runs to his son before he can reach his gate. And he covers his son in the security of his arms, and he says, you just let somebody try to stone my son. If you want to stone him, you're going to have to stone me too. So he covers his son in his arms. He hears the shame emanating from his son. And he just rattles off his speech. God, you know, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to... and, And he shuts him up. He says, now, son, I know that you wanted a party, and that's why you left after all. And yet you want to see a party? I'll show you a real party. And so he takes the very best robe that he personally has and he has it placed over his son's grossness. He puts a ring on his hand, a turban on his head, shoes on his feet, demands a feast and a celebration, kills the fattened calf. And as the father says, for the son of mine was dead. He was lost, but now he is found. Notice that the father does not disown his son. Notice verse 24. He says, this is my son. Our father gushes over his prodigal sons and prodigal daughters who have repented and returned. In the same way that God the father gushed over God the son at the baptistry and the Jordan River. At the mountain of transfiguration where he looks upon God the Son and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In this kingdom and with this Father, when we leave that way, we can come back. And you know, I wish so bad that I could sit down now and that that could be the end of the parable. But again, lost is a word Jesus primarily uses for religious people who've lost their way. Verses 1 and 2, the Pharisees have lost their way so clearly. And so he has to give us one more parable, which is the parable of the other prodigal son. You know, the parable that so oftentimes goes overlooked in all of this. Yeah, we thought that there was only one prodigal son, right? This father has two prodigal sons. This is the prodigal son who stayed home. In verse 25, once, once the younger son has returned, it says, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, and he said to them, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. You can see the smile on this guy's face. And yet the oldest son is not smiling, though, in verse 28, is he? It says, but he was angry, and he refused to go in. Well, in the first century, whenever there was a fracture in a family relationship, a third party was always needed to bring about reconciliation. And the criteria for who the mediator would be was incumbent upon who the next closest relationship was. And since this is a matter of the youngest son, that responsibility of the reconciler would have fallen upon the oldest son, the oldest brother, He's been there his whole entire life. He's never gone to his father demanding his inheritance. He works hard for his father from sun up until sundown. He's literally working his fingers to the bone as his disgraced brother returns. And while everybody else is rejoicing and partying, his older brother is incensed. He boycotts his party. He begins yelling at his father in verse 29. Notice what he says. He answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And notice his tone in verse 30. But when this son of yours who has devoured your prosperity with prostitutes, he's speaking factually, he's not lying, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. At the root of his response is jealousness and selfishness. I want us to listen to verse 29 again. And I want us to count the personal pronouns that he uses. Verse 29, he says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. In only one sentence, he refers to himself five times. I, I, me, I, my. What is he saying? He's saying, I am so much better than my brother is. I never would have wasted your inheritance with whores and with prostitutes. I never would have brought that kind of disgrace on your name. He's saying, where is my recognition? Where's my party, Dad? See, this is the kind of guy who just about whenever he opens his mouth, All that he ever seems to have are grievances and accusations. And I've met people in churches who remind me so much of this person. They're so much like this older brother. All they have are grievances and accusations. And you know, the older son is reminiscent of a person in the church who, who's very offended and disgusted by the way that God operates. And you know, every time that I read about this older brother and remember him, I've got to look at myself too, though. Because if I am not careful, if you are not careful, rather than having the spirit of the Father, this, this restless, compassionate Father, we can so easily have the spirit of the older brother. This older brother who keeps all of the rules, never misses a service, always wears his Sunday best, has all the right answers in Bible class, but whose heart is full of rage and bitterness and self-righteousness. It looks like he's got his acts together to most people. And yet his spirit is decaying inside. He's not a beautiful, vibrant rose. He's he's a withering rose. He's physically there. And yet spiritually absent. And I wish it weren't true, but we live in a world that is full of prodigals who have returned to their church families. Only to find a village full of enraged older brothers waiting for them, rather than ecstatic, sleep-deprived, restless fathers who heard mutterings, can you, can you believe that she is showing her face here after what she did? And I think tragically, a lot of prodigals Never get beyond the the shame of, I am no longer worthy to be called your son or your daughter. And that's what happens when a person is made to feel shame for what they did way back when. And the best way that I've ever heard it described to me is that guilt is when we understand that we have made a mistake, and that is necessary. And yet shame is when we've been made to feel that I am the mistake. You see, the older brother should have kept watch night and day for his brother. He should have raced his father to see who could weep on his brother's neck first. And yet instead, as rejoicing breaks out at his brother's return, his reaction is, who cares? What about me? You see, he's acting as if his brother is still on his hands and knees in the pig pen. Not even realizing that his own heart has lost its way away from the ways of God so much more than his brothers ever had. And so in closing this morning to the elder son and to a church full of people who want to honor God in our lives, to a world of religious people who can so easily wander from the ways of Jesus Christ and from the Sermon on the Mount. At the very end of Luke 15, Jesus reveals the Father's heart. And Jesus shows us the kind of hearts that is possible for us to have within us. Where the Father, very heartbroken at his son's response, says in verse 31. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was alive and is now found. To reach the lost doesn't always require a trip across town or a flight across the ocean. Often reaching the lost is something that begins with a very honest look in the mirror. Because after all, we can be lost like a sheep. Lost primarily by its own carelessness and lost. We can play a role in someone being lost like a coin. Lost at least in part by our poor example. We can be lost like the son who demanded it all and squandered it all and crashed and burned. Or we can even be lost like the one, at least at heart, who stayed home but, but whose heart rejected the ways of God. My brothers and sisters, yes, let's show Jesus to our relatives, our, our coworkers, our neighbors. Let's support outreaches to other countries for the lost. Amen. Amen. And yet before we go to our neighbors and to our relatives and to our enemies with the gospel of peace of Jesus Christ, let's make sure that they will not be dealing with the older brother when we stand before them with the gospel of Jesus.